Our speaker for this hour is Brother Grady Miller from the Pikes Peak Congregation in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And let me just say there are four things that uh, I really appreciate uh, about Brother Miller. Number one and first, and that is that he is a gospel preacher, a good man serving the Lord, and we are grateful for that. Number two, that his name is Grady. That uh, happens to be my father's name, so I feel a kinship already, Brother Miller, uh, because of that. Uh, number three, he loves to go to the Bible lands, and of course that's right up my alley as well. And then number four, as a Texan, he listed that he came from the volunteer state of Tennessee. Now, unless you're from Texas, you don't really understand that, right? Well, they're the ones that came down and helped uh, stay the Alamo. So thank you, Brother Miller, for giving me a residence in Texas. I appreciate that. We are grateful that you are here and looking forward to your great message today on the victory that's found in Christ. Thank you. Thank you, John. And I declare it does my heart good this weekend that I've been able to be up here and to see John preaching and praying and leading singing and introducing speakers and all the other things that he does so well. It wasn't all that long ago that so many of us were praying so hard that the Lord might spare him and use him even more in the vineyard and the work of our master and we are so thankful that our Lord heard that prayer. Not his time yet to keep that appointment, but you will, and I will, and you will. And I think that makes the words of our passage from 1 Corinthians 15 all that more special and meaningful to us all. The Apostle Paul is writing, of course, and he says, I tell you this, no flesh and blood. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will blow, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will rise incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible puts on incorruption and this mortal puts on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be immovable, be steadfast, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord inasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Some passages are too precious beyond the power of words that we might employ and try to describe them, try to expound them, try to do an exegesis and go through them after the very best we can do, we've just got to say, I didn't do that justice. These last few days here at Bear Valley, able to attend Thursday night, Friday, Saturday morning, Darlene and I needed to be down at Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs this morning, but we pedaled back up here hard in time to hear Brother Berger. And you know, as I said and listened to all the speakers and all the lessons and found myself smiling from time to time and also saying, you know, I'm glad he had that passage. I, I sure did like to hear what he had to say about it. Well, I kind of feel the same way this afternoon with this, this passage. number of men that I've heard this weekend, I'd kind of like to hear the way that you explain it. And I could sit in the pew and smile. And I think I'll share with you something of a personal observation. And your mileage may vary. You may feel this way, maybe not so much. But I think there are passages in God's Word. And looking back years ago and the spiritual odyssey that I am and looking at it today, you know, there are countless things I read, I studied, I memorized as a boy, as a young man, as a middle-aged man, and now I'm not. And I think that I have grown in them and they have grown on me. Heaven, the home of the soul, the end of all things, the great resurrection to come. Well, you know, as a young shaver, there were places to go, things to do, a life to be lived, and the excitement of it all. And I'll confess that, yes, I knew the text, and I knew the value of it, and I knew the depth of meaning in it, but, you know, as far as it just really registering on that powerful emotional level. You know, when the end of the road is way out there yonder and we're nearer the beginning than we are the end, I think as we get toward the end, we start appreciating more and more what the Lord has said about our reward, about our home with Him forever, about the new body that we will have, and all of these wonderful things. So this afternoon, I'd rather be hearing someone else, but here I am, and here we go. So we're looking at our text from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50, going down through verse 58, and... I think all of us would acknowledge that the little part that I have at the end of the chapter, that's not the only thing that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. All those things that came before, and especially 
the passages in 1 Corinthians 15, before my part in this begins, that's the heavy lifting section. That's putting together the nuts and the bolts and the this and the that. The Apostle Paul was a great one for closely reasoned, layered, stacked development of here's what it's going to be. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15. And we start talking about the resurrection of Jesus, which is the foundation of everything. And then we look at how the resurrection will play out, especially verse 35 that Brother Wayne covered so well. Well, how are the dead raised? What body are we going to have? And maybe even an unspoken question, what about those who don't die when the Lord comes back? Is that a special category? How do they fit in his purpose and plan? And Paul just goes point by point by point. And in that masterful way, led by the Spirit of God, he just leads us through what can be a complicated discussion. And as Brother Wayne just acknowledged, one, that none of us have all the answers, no matter how sure we may feel that we are. And then when we get down to verse 50, it's a different kind of passage. It's a passage of exhilaration, exaltation. It's a crescendo. It's a climax. And based on the reasoning that comes before, Paul says, now then, here's what it's going to happen. And here's what it's going to mean. And so there's the more personal application that we see as we get down to the verses that we're considering for this afternoon. Paul says, now then we've talked about something of the what. We're going to be raised up in a new body. Why? Or in West Tennessee, we would say, how come? Well, this body isn't fit for heaven. You know, you could take this body and go way down under the depths of the sea, and this body can't survive. It wasn't made for that. You can take this body and blast it off in a rocket and go and orbit the earth and go to the far reaches of outer space and... As long as we've got that capsule and life support, men and women can live. But this body isn't suited. It's not made for that kind of existence. And just so when we think of this physical body, we need a spiritual body that's fit and suited and appropriate for that spiritual home of the soul that we call heaven. When... Well, Paul is not addressing so much the chronology and the timetable, but he says, now then, in order, we've got to have this physical body first, and then the spiritual body. It follows not only according to reason and logic, but according to God's purpose and plan, and that's the way that it plays out. And then how? How will all of that happen? Well, if you can understand a seed 
being planted in the earth, and when it comes up, it's the same, but it's not the same. It's the same, but it's different. It's better. Paul says if you can understand that, you can understand something about the resurrected body. And when we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and we take notice of those folks who doubted, disputed, denied a bodily resurrection. You know, sometimes I've seen in Bible class, as we go through those particular verses, people will be shaking their head. I don't get it. How could they think that? And these are members of the body of Christ. These are the redeemed. And how in the world could they miss something so basic, so fundamental to the faith? And there the Apostle Paul said in verse 19, If only in this life, if that's our reward, if that's our hope, if that's our calling, you know, of all people, we're the most pitiful. In the old King James wording, we are the most miserable in Corinth, if you go to Google Maps and use that handy-dandy measuring tool and you put one end of it on Athens and you put the other end of it on ancient Corinth and it's about 60 air miles, you'll recall in Acts chapter 17, Paul's in Athens, not that far away. And he's preaching on Mars Hill, the dominant place there in that city where the learned gather. And they wanted to hear Paul, and what's this I hear about you having something new? I want to know what that is. And they gave Paul the most attentive, respectful hearing until he mentioned the resurrection of the dead and then sudden stop. Uh, we'll invite you back one of these days. We'll hear you again on this matter. And that was the end of it all. Well, apparently in Corinth, just like Athens, they had that Greek sense of philosophy. They had an afterlife. They had a Hadean world. They had a place of reward, and they had a place of punishment, and they had a place of limbo, and they had it all worked out. But the idea of a bodily resurrection was just ridiculous. And you'll remember when Paul began this first Corinthian letter. And he talked about the wisdom of men and how that in contrast God's wisdom was like foolishness. Well, the resurrection of the body was exhibit A in that hall. And Paul is saying, oh, if you... Follow a gospel that doesn't include a resurrection. It's not the good news. It's the not so good news. How in the world can you leave this off? And then you'll notice that Paul says this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. And I'm being heavy on that word must because that's the way it is in the text. Paul, through the Spirit, chose a word that means it just has to be. 
It carries the sense of inevitability. Something that must take place. There's no other way. Paul says here's God's plan for bringing us into his spiritual realm. And we are sharing in his spiritual home. We can't do it in this flesh. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This corruptible, this mortal, this corrupt and decaying, dying and failed and failing fleshly body, we'll have to put it off. And in exchange, we get a new and glorious and celestial home for who I am in whatever shell we think of or the word body is just as good a word as any. So, when we're looking at our text this afternoon, it's a bit different. We can look at it and analyze it. Nothing wrong with that. We can do some word studies, and we can see how the grammar and the syntax all puts together and how it flows irresistibly to the point. And that's a good way to study the scriptures, and I think that's the Bear Valley way of studying the scriptures. But now then, we also need to have somewhat this sense of, here it is, and here's what it means. And here's the way that it makes us feel a rejoicing and a comfort and a feeling of blessedness and peace knowing here's what the good Lord has in store for me and for you. And so we look at the text and Paul says that the trumpet will sound and God's timetable then starts to move. When the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised incorruptible in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye. And we shall be changed. You know, the Paul preface this particular passage when he says, now then let me tell you a mystery. And here might be a good observation for what it's worth. A lot of times in our Bible study, I know we do word studies, and we look it up in a English, Greek dictionary, most of us. Some of you are able to read Greek just like you can the morning newspaper. Others of us, we rely on help and aids and tools all the time. But you know, Paul is saying, here's a secret. That's the way the New Century Version words it. And they got away from the word mystery altogether, and maybe there's some value in thinking about it that way. When someone asks me, when someone asks you, you know, I read in the writings of the Apostle Paul, he's talking about the mystery. And it's God's unfolding revelation, say in Ephesians chapter 3. What is that? Well, back in Genesis, God made all men. Starting with the last few verses of chapter 11, then in chapter 12, God singled out Abraham and his family. 
and gave them special revelation, special instruction, special responsibilities, special duties. And they were the called out chosen people of God. And through that nation, God brought a Savior into the world. And now in Jesus, Jew and Gentile are brought together into the same building. And Paul says that was something that was not known in ages gone by. That was the mystery revealed. But the point is, sometimes when we look up and do our word studies, and here's the word, and here's the root, and here's the basic meaning, and the best Greek authorities say that's so, and we find the word, or the word in that verse, and we find the same word in another verse, in another chapter, in another book, and it means this here, and it, so it must mean that here, and it must mean that in the other passage. We know the words retain their same fundamental meaning, but context changes everything. And that's where we get the meaning of what the word is. And so Paul says, let me tell you a mystery. No, it's not the reunification of Jew and Gentile. But it's in the sense of a secret that you couldn't know unless Almighty God revealed it. No Greek philosopher stumbled over this discovery. And the prophets of old, speaking for God in the long ago, they never saw this particular aspect of God's unfolding power and plan. Paul says, let me tell you something that God is going to do, and people have not known it until now. And we, when we're raised up, will be changed. We might would expect Paul to use that word that we get metamorphosis from. That's a good Greek word. It's found elsewhere in the New Testament. A metamorphosis. Well, that's a change. That's not the word that he's using. He's using another word found about six times in the New Testament, the word alasso. And it's the word that means change into something other. And yet, context determines just what that change might be. Hebrews chapter 1, you'll remember the Hebrew writer starts off, let me show you the superiority of Jesus. More so than any prophet, any priest, more so than any angel. To which of the angels did God ever say? And there's a string of quotations from what you and I call the Old Testament. And the writer quotes from Psalm 102, you, Lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you endure. And then he says this physical universe is just like a garment or clothes getting old. And a coat or a cloak that you fold up and they will be changed. Well, that's something of the way the word is being used here in 1 Corinthians 15. 
That passage in Hebrews chapter 1 is just one in a series of conversations recorded when God was talking to himself. When? I don't know, but it might have been before the foundation of the world. You remember Jesus stumped the scholars of his day. And they said, the son of David, who is he? Well, they thought they knew that. And then Jesus says, how then in the spirit does David call him Lord? The Lord said unto my Lord. That's the conversation in heaven that God is having with himself. Or it may help us to think of God the Father talking to himself, but it's Jesus who will become flesh. And right here, I've gone way over my head. But the word change in that passage. You know, 2 Peter 3, what's going to happen to this world? It's going to be burned up. It's going to be pulverized, obliterated, annihilated. It's going to be done away with. That's not what's going to happen to Grady Miller. And that's not what's going to happen to you. In that last great resurrection morning, God is not coming to destroy us. But when we're raised up, we will be changed the same, but different and even better. And Paul says that will take place in a moment, in the blink of an eye. And the word that he uses there is the word that we have for Adam. Today, of course, we can split the Adam. Sometimes to our benefit, sometimes to the horror of a great destruction. But to the Greeks, they never conceived that the Adam could be split or divided. It was a particle so small that it could not be cut And so Paul is saying, in the blink of an eye, in that small, indivisible element of time, God will change those who are being raised up. And you know, when we think about it today, we live in the world of left-behind foolishness. Seven or eight different covenants. Two or three or four different resurrections. At least a couple of second comings. And it was the old classic premillennialism put on steroids. And it's morphed into something that even as we're here this afternoon, somebody somewhere is tweaking and adding to it. And the idea that the Lord is going to come in secret gets some. Coming back again, this time visible, do something else. And maybe at the end of a millennium on earth, with Jerusalem as headquarters, there's going to be another dispensation and phase. And it's confusion and foolishness galore. And Paul is saying in a moment, in the blink of an eye, The dead will be raised incorruptible. Jesus said in John 5, don't marvel at this. The hour is coming in which the dead will be raised. Those that have done good into the resurrection of life, those that have done evil into the resurrection of condemnation. 
The Apostle Paul elaborated somewhat on this idea in his writing to the Thessalonians because it fit the kind of questions they had. And he says that the dead in Christ will be raised first. Then others will be meeting them in the air. But here Paul isn't going into the details. He just says in just that short, immeasurable, brief span of time, we shall be changed. And then you notice that he says next, so when? So when or but when? New American Standard, now, when, the Net Study Bible, a lot of you might have that on your computer software, the Logos Passage. And if you're reading from the English Standard and the NIV and maybe some others, it just says when, and as I understand it, that's a perfectly good way to translate that. Paul is not making a contrast between this and that, and they're two separate things, but it's more the idea of flow. But you'll remember 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 10, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. Well, it's the same construction we find here in 1 Corinthians 15. And here's what Paul is doing. He's pinpointing. He's drawing a tight little circle around the very moment of our victory. I've preached a lot of funerals, as the saying goes. Not as many as the really old preachers in the audience this afternoon, I'm sure. But you know, I've used it before, and I'm sure you've heard it before, that so-and-so, he's gained his victory in Jesus, and he's graduated into glory. Well, I love that terminology, but you know, to be exact, our victory doesn't come at the moment of our death. Paul says, but when this incorruptible puts on this corruptible puts on incorruption when this mortal puts on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death you are going down death who's got the last laugh now death where is your sting Hades, grave, you think you have the victory? No, when that last trumpet sounds, that's when our moment of victory is final and finished and secure. And that's something that we ought to circle and point all of our life and our soul's well-being into. That's the sound that I want to be hearing. I'll be somewhere listening for my name. That's the resurrection morning that I hope will dawn and the blessings that will come. And then Paul quotes from Hosea and Isaiah and he talks death 
But you know, that taunt would be premature. Death still reigns in the world of men. A sad announcement was made in our first session this afternoon as I came in. And even while we're sitting here now, the chances are very good that someone that we know, that we know well, that we love, that's walking with the Lord, that appointment has come for them. Death is an everyday reality for all of us. Earlier in chapter 15, verse 29, our last great enemy that Jesus will put down is death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children are partakers of flesh and blood, we have a body that wears out and it dies. Jesus came and partook of the same nature. A body that could be nailed to the cross. A body in which he could die. And so that through his death he might conquer him who has the power of death, even Satan, And then he says in the next verse, and deliver those who all their lives lived in fear and subject to bondage. I don't know how old we are. I don't know if your story is different from mine. But there comes a time after attending funerals of loved ones, even while we're very young, and we begin to put clues together and the realization comes everyone dies including me but when the trumpet sounds and our Lord returns then death will be no more and then notice next how that Paul says that's got to mean something Paul is back to being Paul. He's been celebrating. He's been rejoicing. He's been inspired by the reasoning that he's offered. But he comes to a therefore. And with Paul, you always come around to a therefore. Therefore, what's our calling? What's our duty? What's our response? And what does it need to be? Well, we need to hold on. We need to hold tight. We need to stand our ground. We need to stand tall. And we need to be steadfast. And we need to be immovable. Oh, we have our questions. Sometimes we have our doubts. But yet there's a moment of clarity that never leaves us. I believe my God And I believe he has a home waiting. Jesus told his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many places of abode. I come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Believing in a resurrection changes everything. I am resolved to hold on until death calls or my Lord comes again. And yet Paul also says in that therefore passage, 
to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. And again, personal observation, your mileage may vary. I haven't lived as long as some, and I haven't traveled nearly as widely as so many others. But yet it seems to be my observation that sometimes the besetting sin of good, sound, conservative brethren, holding on and not being moved, well, that's in our DNA. You know, it's kind of like the old joke, change. And someone says that in maybe a men's business meeting, and instantly everyone's on the defensive. Change, we don't like change. And there's something about us that we like holding on and standing on steady, solid ground. And maybe for me, and maybe to some extent for you, that's not so much the challenge. The challenge is to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know, most of us, we plateau. Sometimes we take two steps back before we try to pick up and go three forward. We stall. We grow weary in well-doing. And here Paul is saying that our time is limited. And our calling is sure. And what do we need to do in view of the great resurrection coming? We need to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now then we'll close with this. And there's a quotation from one of my heroes. You may recognize J.W. McGarvey. And he says something, and I wish I could write like that, but I can't. That's one reason why I'm still reading his old original commentary on the book of Acts. He wrote it 150 years ago. But he says, looking at this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has been warmed by the glow and the glory of his argument. And now the apostle burst forth in his strain of triumphant exaltation, which has wakened a corresponding thrill in the heart of the Christian. And it's been a solace and a comfort to the church through all subsequent centuries. In other words, Paul has a cloudburst of fervor and emotion. When he taunts death and says, When the trumpet blows and our Lord comes, then death is eaten away, swallowed up in victory, and there's no more sting left in our last great enemy. That's eloquent. It's poetic. It's not my gift. But I'm probably like you. My soul thrills when we sing about heaven, the home of the soul, and that great day that is coming and we sing, O oh Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sought. And the clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. 
And some sweet day we'll sing up there the song of victory. Oh, victory in Jesus. And if I could, I would, but I can't, so I'm not going to. But if I had the gift of a Bahalia Jackson, I think I would throw my head back and let it be heard in that great getting up morning. Fare thee well. Fare thee well. You and I, this is the moment that we're living for. This is the moment that we're dying for. When our Lord shall come and we shall hear his call, And we will be changed.